and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Putin's State of the Nation address, in which he announced Russia is pulling out of the only nuclear arms treaty it has with the United States, and that Russian nuclear forces would now go on a hair trigger while blaming the U.S. for the war in Ukraine, and warning his own people that the West was out to get them and destroy Russia. Joining us is Stephen Young, Senior Washington Representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was Deputy Director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers, a Senior Analyst at the British American Security Information Council, and was a Fellow in the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. Then we'll examine the darkening landscape ahead with the paranoid Russia threatening nuclear war, and China poised to deliver a peace plan that will either be an attempt to calm nuclear tensions or another step in consolidating an anti-democratic alliance and deepening the divide of great power rivalry. Joining us is Andrew Michter, Dean of the College of International Security Studies at the Marshall Center in Germany and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He previously worked in Poland as director of the German Marshall Fund of the United States' Warsaw Office and is the author of several books on European security and transatlantic relations, including The Limits of Alliance, the United States, NATO, and the EU in North and Central Europe. Then finally, we'll go to Mexico for a reaction to the conviction today in the U.S. of the head of Mexico's equivalent of the FBI, who routinely received briefcases stuffed with money from El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel. Joining us is Joan Grillo, a contributing writer at the New York Times specializing in crimes and drugs. Based in Mexico City, he is the author of El Narco, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award, and Gangster Warlords, a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and a Guardian Book of the Year. His latest book is Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, and he blogs at yoangrillo.substack.com, where his latest article is, So, Is Mexico a Narco State? Security Chief Gennaro Garcia Luna is found guilty. He's just the tip of the iceberg. And joining us now is Stephen Young, the Senior Washington Representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was Deputy Director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers, a Senior Analyst at the British American Security Information Council, and was a Fellow at the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Young. I wish I could say I'm glad to be here, but I'm glad to be here because I'm here, but I don't want to be here. It's bad news. It is very bad news that in uh, Vladimir Putin's State of the Nation address today, he said that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START Treaty. He also announced that he'd signed a decree quote, on putting new ground-based strategic complexes on combat standby duty. And he also warned that Russia was ready to resume nuclear weapons testing with the caveats. He said, of course, we will not do it first, uh, but if the U.S. conducts tests, we will do it as well. I don't think there's any evidence that the U.S. is interested in nuclear testing, is there? No, no, not that I'm aware of at all, no. Right. So, I mean, a lot of people see it as nuclear blackmail, frankly, that he's threatening nuclear war uh, in order to compensate for his failings and misjudgments in Ukraine. 
I wouldn't put it quite that far, but definitely it's a very concerning sign. Basically, the the I think the bottom line is that Russia will still be a part of the treaty and will not actively undermine the limits in the New START treaty, uh, but it will no longer cooperate with the U.S. in terms of verifying its its reaching uh, its under the treaty limits. Uh, and they will not talk about uh, next the next treaty, or they won't join meetings of what's called the Bilateral Consultative Commission, which is designed to hammer out differences uh, the two countries have about the treaty. So it is um, definitely concerning. Uh, it is another worrying sign that Russia is not in the mood to negotiate about anything. Um, but it's not quite uh, that Russia is not going to take this and, and jump into nuclear war. Uh, anytime soon, although of course that is always possible, uh, given Putin's prevarications on uh, not invading Ukraine in the first place. Uh, so it, to me, it's a concerning sign, but another another elevation of the threat, but not something incredibly new to be worried about. Well, he ties in the nuclear facilities with the Ukraine war in as much as he said he doesn't want the Americans climbing over our nuclear facilities, meaning inspecting them, because he says, quote, this is a theater of the absurd. We know the West is directly involved in attempts of the Kiev regime to strike at our bases. So he's saying that the U.S. nuclear inspectors would be spying for Ukraine in order for them to strike deep into Russia, which they've done to a limited degree. Yeah. In other words, in other words, the Ukrainians are going to strike at Russia's nuclear weapons, which is pretty bizarre, and uh, I can't imagine anybody being that reckless. Yeah, it's it's not clear at all how the U.S. would aid Ukraine in that effort in any substantial way. And basically, the the you can see Russian military sites on Google Maps, uh, and so it's not really any great secrets uh, that the inspections that happen under the New START treaty. Um, when they're when they're allowed to happen, uh, are inspecting known sites. They're not like any secret sites that they, the U.S. inspectors go into. They only go into agreed sites that are part of the treaty already. So they're already well known, identified, not quite public, but things you can see from space uh, uh, that already exist. So there's no. I don't see how, again, this would be helping the Ukrainians and any attacks they might want to commit. But then again, Putin is grasping at straws. He is frustrated. Doesn't like losing the war and seeking ways to put pressure on the U.S. to try and undermine its support for Ukraine. That really, to me, is the bottom line here. This is more about trying to undermine U.S. support for Ukraine than it is about Russia trying to do things we don't want under New START. Well, it's also aimed at making people in countries like Germany, NATO countries, extremely nervous. They lived through the Cold War, and now I'm hearing reports from just anecdotal reports from people I know in Germany that are saying, you know, we're scared. And they should be scared uh, because this is indeed a terrifying reality that's been brought home to bear. I mean, the, the reality has been here for a very long time, but Putin is making, has made much more explicit nuclear threats uh, while invading Ukraine than has happened in the past. It really is sort of a new phenomena, but it's always been there. The threat has always been there that at any point, at any time, uh, both Russia or the U.S. have their nuclear policies. We're allowed to go first. We're allowed to start a nuclear war. That's one of the more shocking things people aren't aware of, is that both the U.S. and Russia maintain a first-use nuclear policy that if it's in their interests and they feel they're threatened, they believe they can start a nuclear war.
And in terms of uh, laying the blame on the West, uh, Putin said today, I want to repeat, they, the West, started this war and we used force and are using force to stop it. The Western elites do not conceal their goals to bring Russia a strategic defeat. What does it mean? It means to end us once and for all. So that's what he's telling the Russian people, that the West and NATO and America are out to destroy them. And at the same time, he's putting his nuclear forces on a hair trigger. It couldn't be any worse. Yeah, it certainly is very concerning. And and it it seems that Putin, in many ways, is getting more and more paranoid. And he he certainly recognizes that his invasion of Ukraine was not what he envisioned would happen. Uh, And the fact that the U.S. and NATO allies are still giving so many arms to Ukraine is something that he wants to end if he possibly can. So I I think that really is his primary goal here is to try and end support for Ukraine. But he also has to tell a story to Russia, as you say, that that they will believe. And this is just the fantasy that that the U.S. and the West are responsible for the war is a complete fantasy. Um, Russia invaded Ukraine without warning and after telling the world it would not do so. Um, There was no Western presence specifically in Ukraine at the time. And now there is massive Western arming of Ukraine as a result of the Russian invasion. Well, you know, the apologists for Putin in the West, and they're not that many, uh, mostly on the right in the House of Representatives, the Freedom Caucus and uh, at Fox News with Tucker Carlson, and I guess on to some extent in on the left. But the reality is that there, there is an asymmetry in this war from day one, apart from the fact that Russia has, what, three to four times the population of Ukraine, and they attacked and tried to knock the country out in, in one blow, which failed. But now he's mobilized a lot of reservists, and now he's trying to do it again. Uh, but the asymmetry is that Russia is free to destroy Ukraine's infrastructure and its cities and hospitals. There's a new report out from Physicians for Human Rights. One in ten Ukrainian hospitals have been destroyed by Russian missiles, etc. So... The asymmetry is that the Ukrainians can't attack the uh, Russians in in their country and go after their industrial base and their armaments and storages and troop concentrations, etc. But the Russians can do that to Ukraine. So Ukraine, the only leveling, the only uh, equalizer is the West supplying weapons, isn't it? It certainly is, yes. Russia has many advantages over Ukraine. uh, And yeah, I think it is. That's why... We certainly cannot reward Russia by allowing them to keep the parts of Ukraine they've taken over. And that's why the West has chosen to arm Ukraine as much as it already has, which has been very significant. Um, We haven't given them everything they've asked for, but we've given them a huge shipment of billions and billions of weapons, advanced weapons, and most most recently the pledge to give them tanks. Uh, that'll, that'll follow, I think, down the road, but it hasn't happened yet. But in any case, yeah, there, there clearly is massive Western support for Ukraine that is incredibly helpful to them in their uh, stopping the Russian takeover of the country. Well, the scholar Stephen Kotkin, who was interviewed at the New Yorker recently, the scholar of Stalin, uh, or biographer of Stalin, and he made the analogy that it's as though you have a a 10-room house 
and an intruder comes in and occupies two rooms in your house and trashes them and then starts to trash the other eight rooms in your house. Meanwhile, his house next door is untouched. So that seems to be the situation that's going on here. And, I mean, it, obviously, Putin is out on a limb and perhaps a little deranged. He's certainly paranoid, as you point out. Is there anybody that can restrain him? I mean, the, the only people that apparently he listens to are the Chinese, and Xi Jinping is about to make a big speech on Friday on the anniversary of the uh, Russian attack on uh, Ukraine. Is there any possibility that Xi Jinping can restrain him? I can't imagine any world leader, even ones hostile to the United States, really want a nuclear war. That's certainly true. And I think it is, I mean, it's not quite true that there have been no attacks on Russia's house, as it were. There have been certainly sanctions put on Russia's house, and there has been a great uh, decline in uh, Russian exports of gas. Their primary economy is based on exports of fossil fuels, and those have been reduced. I think it is, will be long-term consequences for Russia from that, um, but those have not been enough yet to have them change their path. But I do believe you're right that, yes, that China is the key player in this in many ways, and as long as they continue to support or at least tolerate Russia's actions, it will be hard to have them start. For example, China is now importing more Russian gas than it was before, so they are supporting the government in that way. Um, so, but that, I, I, it is a question of, does China tolerate this because they like both Russia and the West being weakened as they have a fight, or um, what? That's a question that I don't know the answer to. I do think that it will require Chinese cooperation uh, to help end the war in Russia eventually. Well, U.S. intelligence apparently is saying that China is covertly supplying arms through Hong Kong, jamming equipment uh, and spare parts for aircrafts, etc. That's a concern that Secretary of State Blinken raised just yesterday. So it's a little scary on our side. You've got President Biden in having made that surprise visit to Kiev uh, yesterday and now in Poland. It uh, doesn't seem like a good time for the U.S. to be triumphal, though. Does that bother you? Well, certainly uh, it does seem like on the ground in Ukraine, they are generally in a stalemate with both sides basically just fighting um, set positions and not doing making much, many gains. Uh, and it's certainly not clear at all Russia will abandon the fight anytime soon, nor the West will stop supporting Ukraine. So I, I currently can't see a way out of this um, situation. The forces on both sides are aligned to maintain a stalemate, it seems like. And that's really a bad situation for everyone involved. Uh, but until something changes, I'm not sure how we get out of this spot. But Putin made it clear in today's speech that he's in it for the long haul and that there's no peace talks on the horizon, not even any suggestion of them, no mention of China's um, upcoming initiative, whatever that is. What do you expect from China? I mean, it's pretty hard for me to believe that, that China will actually pressure Russia in any real way. But, you know, hopefully, as, as we mentioned before, they too are alarmed at Putin's recklessness in rattling the nuclear saber and threatening nuclear war. 
Yeah, we've definitely already seen China criticizing Russia for making nuclear threats. That already has happened. Um, I do hope that China will express concern about Russia's statement today to suspend New START because China is not interested in a nuclear arms race itself. It certainly is deciding to invest more in nuclear weapons than it has in the past. I believe those investments are largely because it's not assured that the U.S. is deterred from attacking China. And that's the reason for their increased investment uh, is not because they want to take over the world themselves, but they fear that the U.S. is not deterred from trying to attack China. Um, and that's a real concern that I think is worth taking that into account as we ponder our responses. But as to how China will, how far China will go to support Russia, that's way above my pay grade. Well, the clock is running out for arms control. And it's the new start treaty essentially will expire in about a thousand days and then there'll be no arms control regime between the two major nuclear powers russia and the united states and the start limits is 1550 long-range nuclear warheads per side and of course that is you know what would it take to bring about a nuclear winter something like 200 or so nuclear explosions the science is disputed, but yeah, that's certainly a, a possibility. If the more weapons you use, the more risk there is of nuclear winter. But the reality is once you've used a couple hundred nuclear weapons, nuclear winter is a long-term concern, but the that use itself is going to cause potentially hundreds of millions of deaths. And I do think that the, there is a chance, the, the best outcome I can foresee is that Russia and the U.S. will not be able to keep the treaty itself in force, but will agree to basically operate as if it were in force. And so the two presidents will decide that maintaining the treaty is in their interests, and they will continue to report to each other uh, on their stockpile sizes, and hopefully, with, some, with a good bit of progress, will agree to allow to resume inspections um, before too long. And that can be done by presidential agreement. There's no requirement that a treaty authorize inspections. It's easier and more formal under a treaty. But you can imagine a regime that the two presidents could agree to, where they both agree new start limits are in their interests, even if the treaty itself has expired. Well, the treaty expires in 2026. In other words, we've got a thousand days left uh, of arms control. Yes, yes. That's, I, believe, I think there, yes. I can't foresee a scenario and we agree a new treaty as passed by the U.S. Senate uh, in the next three years. As I said, I can see a scenario where it could be an agreement between the presidents to maintain the limits without the treaty being in place. Right. Well, Stephen Young, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Young as a senior Washington representative in the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he focuses on reducing the threat of nuclear war. Previously, he was deputy director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers and a senior analyst at the British American Security Information Council and was a fellow in the State Department's Bureau of Human Rights. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the darkening landscape ahead with a paranoid Russia threatening nuclear war and China poised to deliver a peace plan that will either be an attempt to calm nuclear tensions or another step in consolidating an anti-democratic alliance and deepening the divide 
of great power rivalry. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Germany is Andrew Michter, who is the Dean of the College of International Security Studies at the Marshall Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He previously worked in Poland as director of the German Marshall Fund of the United States' Warsaw Office and is the author of several books on European security and transatlantic relations, including The Limits of Alliance, the United States, NATO and the EU in North and Central Europe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Michter. Good to be uh, here. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Andrew. And what did you make of President Putin's State of the Nation address today? I thought it was very grim. It also uh, indicated that he has no sense of where he wants to go uh, with this other than pressing forward and thinking that the Russian mass of soldiers equipment uh, and the rest of it uh, might overpower the Ukrainians. I mean, by my estimation, Ukraine started at 42 million uh, in in, uh, February of last year. Probably there are about 27 to 30 million Ukrainians left in the country. So it's one to four uh, in terms of population resources. But the stamina of the Ukrainians and the morale is, is extremely strong. So he is he's just throwing his his soldiers at the Ukrainians, hoping that the war of attrition uh, will give him a breakthrough. Uh, I think what the Ukrainians need is um, Western main battle tanks, uh, long range fires and, and airplanes to break through. So when I watched that speech today, it was like almost a replay of the Soviet Union era Politburo meeting. Very grim Russian audience. Uh, Putin just droning on for for almost two hours plus, and uh, very sharp contrast to what President Biden did in Warsaw. Well, President Biden's speech in Warsaw, as you say, Andrew Mechter, could not have been more different, and that in itself makes me nervous. You've got Putin on the one hand basically threatening nuclear war and nuclear blackmail and talking about putting his forces on nuclear alert and pulling out of the the only nuclear arms treaty there is, the New START Treaty, and preparing his own audience, basically saying that, you know, this is all uh, NATO's fault, and they're coming for you. The Americans are coming for you. They're going to destroy our country. They're going to destroy everything that we, we have. I mean, that is so dangerous. And on the other hand, you've got, I don't know whether you'd consider it triumphalism, Andrew, but at least, in contrast, Biden's had a couple of, really good days. Yesterday in Kiev, 
had to drive Putin crazy. And in fact, some of the military bloggers in uh, Russian media have made some very snide remarks saying, you, Putin, never got into Kiev to wander around the, the main square, but Biden has. So is there a danger here that the two nuclear powers are literally talking past each other? I actually think the danger of nuclear escalation is lower than the Russians have been uh, intimating. Um, it's it's not just the nature of this conflict, but it's also the position that, that China and, and India would have taken. China has been pretty explicit about what it would have meant if a nuclear release were to take place, even, even at a tactical level, uh, because that would have changed completely. Um, that would change completely the dynamic in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, look, I've written about this saying this is a system-transforming war in the sense that uh, the Russians have committed a monumental blunder by uh, thinking that uh, this invasion of Ukraine would be a repetition of a repeat of what happened in Crimea. Uh, the Ukrainians have trained very hard. This is now the strongest European military uh, by, by far. Uh, and they're battle-tested. And most of all, the invasion in 2014 and then the, the kind of atrocities that the Russians have committed really consolidated the Ukrainian national identity. There's no more you know, differences between the western parts of Ukraine, which was always more nationalist and more patriotic, and the more Russian-speaking eastern parts of Ukraine. So that's the first point. The second point, I think what we're looking at is uh, the Russian land forces being being pretty badly damaged and, and battered by the Ukrainians. The Russian Navy and the Russian Air Force, both tactical and strategic, are pretty much un untouched. But what the Ukrainians have managed to do was to drain uh, most of, of, the, of the fighting power from the Russian land forces. And the Russians are repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Here's what's riding on this on this conflict, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm kind of pushing back against the idea that uh, we have triumphalism on on the U.S. administration's part. Far from it. I think we know this is going to be a very tough fight going forward. But the Chinese are watching this. The two theaters are interconnected. Uh, the the Russians and the Chinese are aligned in their opposition to the West and especially to the U.S. Uh, supported uh, rules based international order. Uh, the Russians want to revise it. He's relitigating 1991, the end of the Cold War. He thinks he thinks Russia did not lose that war, but it was betrayed by its politicians. Uh, it's almost like you know, kind of interwar Weimar Republic uh, German Deutschlandslegende, right? The great Russian people on the one hand, and then the cowardly Gorbachev, uh, the drunken Yeltsin, all these people who denied Russia uh, the place in the sun. Uh, at the same time, the Chinese want to uh, not just revise the international system, but replace it with one built around and their own values, their own interests, and, and their own priorities. So what's happening in Ukraine is you have a non-NATO force grinding down the Russian military on non-NATO territory. All they need is, is uh, weapons, supplies, and money. And I think uh, they are buying Europe time because Europe is completely disarmed and they're helping us sequence the conflicts in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific. What I'm driving at is um, we need to understand uh, how fundamentally uh, history has changed. There was never the end of history, as Fukuyama suggested. Uh, we are now in the next round of great power competition 
And this, as President Biden said in Warsaw, is uh, about uh, freedom and, and liberty and democracy versus dictatorship and, to- and totalitarian impulses on the other side. So I, I was very proud of uh, seeing President Biden in, in Kiev. Symbols matter. I mean, that's Kennedy at the Berlin Wall. That's Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. I think this visit will go down in history as one of those moments, seminal. So what then, Andrew, do you expect from Xi Jinping on Friday? He's going to make a speech and offer some kind of peace deal. Already, Secretary of State Blinken has expressed skepticism and there's concerns from the intelligence community that China is already supplying lethal military equipment in the form of spare parts for for aircraft and jamming equipment, etc. So a lot of analysts say that the only only person that can rein in Putin and stop his nuclear saber rattling is Xi Jinping. But on the other hand, what do you think is going to happen on Friday? Is he trying to straddle the fact that he doesn't want to lose his European markets and brand China on the one hand, but at the same time he wants to support his ally Putin, who he says there are no limits to their relationship? Well, two things. The Chinese made out like bandits during the last three decades of globalization. I mean, they not only had access to every level of our society, we've moved our jewels in the crown in our technology, our supply chain networks uh, into China uh, to, to leverage labor arbitrage. And, you know, we disconnected our, our trade policy and our energy policy, and the same goes for the Europeans, from what's the most fundamental function of the state, which is national security. Without providing for national security, you cannot be sovereign. You cannot determine your political system or your economic system. So the Chinese uh, grew exponentially, largely fueled by Western capital, Western technology, Western money. Uh, while we were uh, distracted and pulled into into the Middle East, you know, global war on terror, out of area operations. Uh, so the Chinese are now at an inflection point. I mean, first of all, we're discovering that uh, our expectations, to quote Bob Zelig, that that China would become a responsible member of the international system because of trade and interdependence. All of this was a delusion. I wrote a piece for the American interest about two years ago, three decades of delusion. I mean, we've, we've been telling ourselves things that were simply not true, that, that if we bring the Russians and the Chinese into our own systems, allow them access, allow them uh, you know, uh, participation in our educational processes and so forth, uh, the middle class will rise, and then uh, you know, that will mean uh, that uh, China and Russia would, uh, would become more like us. They would democratize. Jefferson's will rise. This is all total nonsense. Uh, so China now is looking at a point where it has to decide. Uh, does it want to hedge? And you're absolutely right. The Chinese have been supplying notes in open, open media sources. They've been supplying electronics, components, but not complete systems to the Russians yet. So if the Chinese were to decide to do that, it would change the entire nature of this war. Uh, it would make it into essentially a proxy global conflict if the Chinese go in that direction. I don't think they're that reckless. I think the reason they're pushing for some sort of a negotiated settlement is because they sense that Russia is in, in a very bad spot. 
the, the, the Russians are not really capable of mounting a, a massive-scale offensive considering where they are today. But it's not in, in Chinese interest to see the Russian military defeated in Ukraine because that would set in motion pressures inside the Russian Federation itself and would redefine the entire East European region. So I think the Chinese are, are trying to buy time. Uh, Xi said to his uh, military to be ready on Taiwan by 2027. I don't know what that deadline actually is. Uh, we can speculate about what he means, if he means a blockade or a military move. But they're looking at the performance of Russian weapons. Most of Chinese systems are based on Russian designs. 2014, very major deal uh, on that. Uh, they're also looking at the benefits they're getting out of uh, very cheap Russian energy and kind of vassalizing the, the Russian state, getting more and more Russian technology, especially for the submarines and some of the high-end systems the Russians developed when they had access to Western technology. So nobody can predict what they will say, obviously. But I would say uh, it is not likely that the Chinese would want to put everything on the line for two reasons. They don't know if they can innovate without continued access to the Western R&D base. That's number one. And number two, uh, if they were to move and transform this into a global confrontation, I would tell you, I will put my money on democracies any day. There's nothing more powerful than a democracy mobilized around a common cause. And I think if the Chinese were to get into this, you would see a major shift across the West. Well, we seem to be then at an, at an inflection point. I know in Germany, uh, Scholz is talking about a turning point, but we could be poised for a real kind of global struggle uh, with the lines drawn pretty clearly between the democratic West and an alliance between China, Russia, and Iran, um, and to some extent the global South. I don't know what the role of India will be in this, but again, they have an autocrat uh, in charge there. So this is a moment then, obviously, to avoid that kind of polarity, right? But at the same time, you're dealing with autocrats, you know, and that's what at the heart of the real struggles in the post-Cold War era has been the struggle between frail democracies and the encroachment of of autocracies and kleptocracies. But you're optimistic. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, it's not so much that I'm optimistic. I just think that uh, there comes a time when leaders in the Western world have to recognize what they're up against. And uh, I wrote a piece last year for the Wall Street Journal that I called, when it comes to Russia and China, we're looking at the crisis of disbelief across the West. Uh, this was not supposed to happen. A major state-on-state -state war was not supposed to happen. State-on-state -state competition was not supposed to happen. The peace dividend was a wonderful, you know, fat 30 years. We're rolling in butter, making money, uh, and, and the rest of it. And... Uh, all of a sudden, we're confronted with two states that want to have a fundamentally different resolution uh, when it comes to how the world is organized, how the world is governed. The Chinese approach to, to, uh, to the global economy, I call this a free market for unfree people. It's, it's, it's a mercantile capitalist, uh, quasi-capitalist system with radically centralized supply chain networks that is run by a, a dictatorship at the very top. And the Russians are 
trying to uh, rebuild the, the kind of imperial structure, the sphere of influence uh, in Europe and their control over the Eastern uh, Slavic core, what used to be the empire. The problem is that the Ukrainians say no. I think the Belarusians, if you look at where this younger generation is, I mean, these kids that went into the streets and they were bludgeoned by the policemen that Lukashenko sent out to suppress opposition to, uh, to a fraudulent election. These are all voices that are basically saying we want to be free, we want to be uh, sovereign, and we want self-determination. Now, we have spent the last 20 years, um, uh, you know, uh, essentially the kind of global war and terror, fighting an 18th century battlefield, dropping, you know, thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions uh, of dollars uh, type of ordinance on, on against an enemy that was essentially a guy with a plywood Kalashnikov, sandals, and, and some very basic equipment. And that reformatted our thinking about what the conflict looks like and our military. We're coming back. I, I think the United States is well on the way uh, to have the resources and the capacity to confront the threat. Uh, I also would like to suggest that Russia of today is not the Soviet Union of the yesteryear. You know, it's a country with half the population. The Russians are not sitting in the middle of Europe, you know, smack dab in Germany with 54 non-Soviet Warsaw Pact divisions. This is really a mid-sized Eurasian power that is trying to stake a claim to being a great power because it's got nukes and, and, and uh, you know, some residual military power. But we've seen how this military performs. Uh, I am the last person to urge confrontation. But I think if we, if we continue to self-deter and to step back instead of confronting the Russians, we will end up with a larger crisis and potentially a wider war in Europe. Let me give you a couple of examples. Every single time Putin used military power, he scored a geopolitical win. He invaded Georgia in 2008. He not only was not punished, he got Nord Stream 1. He invaded Crimea in 2014. Again, he was not really punished. He got Nord, got Nord Stream 2. He butchered the Syrians at Aleppo, and boom, he is now a, a, a supposedly a big you know, player in the Middle East, uh, deciding the migration flows and all of that. And that's why I would argue he thought he could do this once again. And we are now in a situation where I think the West rightly, collectively said enough. Uh, we are politically unified. Uh, I agree that there are different levels of appetite for risk-taking as you move across the European continent. But I think the West is unified uh, around the idea that Ukraine must remain sovereign. Uh, we don't know what the end state over there is going to be. Uh, but if Putin were to win, he narrates this war as a civilizational war against the West, against NATO and the United States. So if he were to win, this would be a civilizational win. You would have a, a self-confident, empowered Russia that would probably rebuild its uh, land forces within three to four years ready to hit Ukraine again and then possibly breach the NATO line. And then you have a wider war in Europe. We can't allow that. But at the end of the day, as you pointed out with about the young people in Belarus, all that Putin offers is gangster government. And yes. so people want the rule of law and democracy. And as Biden pointed out today in Poland, that autocrats only, only understand one word, no, and he went on to say no. they're targeting civilians with death. They're using rape as a weapon of war. They're stealing Ukrainian children and targeting train stations, maternity wards, hospitals, schools, and orphanages. 
So we're talking about the basic difference between civilization and barbarity. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Look, I, I, you can over-rationalize history, but let me, let me try the following analogy, and if I'm overstepping, please tell me. Uh, in 1918, uh, Germany lost the war, the First World War, even though the Reichswehr was moving forward, you know, scored a couple of yards of territory. Uh, during the Weimar Republic, what gave Germany uh, Hitler and the fascist state was the narrative that somehow the German nation, the German army were never defeated. It was the rotten, you know, politicians of the Weimar Republic. The, what the Germans say, it, it was the Deutschstoss legende, the, the uh, stab in the back with the knife legend. Uh, and that that pushed Germany into another bid for empire in the East and, and again lit Europe on fire. And it wasn't until 45 when this imperial drive was broken and Germany emerged from this realizing that it is not an empire. But it's, a, it's a large, mid-sized European state and has, it's become a democracy and it is today truly what it is. I mean, it's, it's something to behold, reconciled with France and whatnot. My point is that the last 20 years of Putinism is analogous to this. I mean, Putin came uh, uh, to power about 10 years into the Russian disintegration. And his argument is the Russian people are great people. They've been denied their place in the sun by the conniving Americans, the Westerners, and most of all by the betrayal of their own politicians. You know, the, the cowardly Gorbachev, drunken Yeltsin, you name it, Moscovidak, whatever you want to put on top of it. And that he is going to restore the glory of the Russian people. Until Russia is decisively defeated on a battlefield in Ukraine in a way that every Russian citizen understands that that period of imperial drive and all of that is over, Russia will have no shot at becoming a normal nation state, quote unquote. It's an empire. Uh, people sometimes say, you know, the Brits had an empire. When the empire ended, they went back to the British Isles and, and became the United Kingdom. Russia is quintessentially an empire. If you look at the number of uh, nations, I mean, the Russians have always called them nationalities. They're actually nations within the, the, what used to be the Soviet Union or the empire. It's, it's a prison of nations. It's something that left Obriansky when he crafted in 1958 for President Eisenhower, uh, you know, the, the resolution on captive nations of Eastern Europe, that he understood very well what it was. <clears throat> so, I don't know what, how, how Russia will develop going forward, but if Russia wins in this conflict, then I think Europe is looking at a very dangerous period and, and, and possibly another you know, conflagration in Europe. So the Europeans, who are very rich, who have incredible resources, need to rebuild their defenses. They need to rearm. The United States has a storm brewing in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we will be here for the Europeans with nuclear, uh, with the nuclear umbrella, with high-end enablers. But the Europeans are perfectly capable of providing the bulk of deterrence, and it need be defensive capabilities at the conventional level. This is what the conversation is about. That's what I listen to in Munich. It has to sink in at every level of leadership, and that leadership in Europe needs to address the public to make them understand how serious the situation is. Well, Andrew McDowell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, sir. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening.
And again, I've been speaking with Andrew Michter, who's the Dean of the College of International Security Studies at the Marshall Center in Germany, and he's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security, and he previously worked in Poland as director of the German Marshall Fund of the United States' Warsaw office, and he's the author of several books on European security and transatlantic relations, including The Limits of Alliance, the United States, NATO, and the EU in North and Central Europe. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back and go to Mexico for a reaction to the conviction today in the U.S. of the head of Mexico's equivalent of the FBI, who routinely received briefcases stuffed with money from El Chapo's Sinaloa cartel. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Mexico is Joan Grillo, a contributing writer at the New York Times, specializing in crime and drugs, based in Mexico City. He is the author of El Narco, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award, and Gangster Warlords, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and a Guardian Book of the Year. And his latest book is Blood Gun Money, how America Arms Gangs and Cartels, and he blogs at yoangrillo.substack.com, where his latest article is, So is Mexico a Narco State? Security Chief Gennaro Garcia Luna is found guilty. He's just the tip of the iceberg. Welcome to Background Briefing, Yoan Grillo. Good to be here. How are you doing? Well, thanks, sir, Yoan. And uh, today, the former head of uh, Mexico's equivalent of the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigations, Gennaro Garcia Luna, Mexico's security minister, was found guilty of taking millions of dollars from Mexican's largest crime group, the Sinaloa Drug Cartel. And that in itself is pretty extraordinary that the head of the equivalent of the FBI could be found guilty of accepting millions of dollars stuffed in briefcases delivered by members of El Chapo Guzman's Sinaloa Drug Cartel. Uh, how is it playing in Mexico? Is this, a, I suppose, it's not entirely a surprise, right? Not a surprise, but it is a very, very big story. Uh, I think, you know, I've, I've been here for 20 years following the drug war, following the violence, and you've always heard about corruption. It's been nothing new. I think to see it, though, talked about in a court of law, and to see some of the things are quite incredible. So that these figures, you know, I knew Garcia Luna when he was, uh, operating here, I met him when he was head of the AFI, which is the equivalent of the FBI, and then when he followed that and he was the, the public security secretary, you know, the most powerful uh, head of the entire federal police. Um, and you kind of 
even though you had this nagging idea, well, this could be corrupt, you know, maybe they're just, you know, kind of lying to you, maybe that it's not fake. You kind of, it's hard to really visualize that. But then when you saw these gangsters uh, in court, like this guy called El Grande, and El Grande said, you know, well, you know, we were meeting him, you know, paying him money. And even when they seized the biggest seizure of cartels at the time in world history, uh, of cocaine in world history, 23 tons of cocaine, even when they seized that, uh, El Grande described how they actually, um, you know, worked with the, this official to get the drugs back, to steal the drugs back. So it was kind of an order fake. And they burned, when they had a, a burning session, which the New York Times was there, various people, it was a, a fake, you know, burning fake cocaine. They're quite extraordinary, really. And I think in Mexico, uh, I mean, in Mexico, it's become a bit more partisan. So people here are like, well, that was the corruption of the previous government, the government, particularly Felipe Calderon, who was president from 2006-2012. He was the one who was corrupt. Look how they're all corrupt. He's also been delegitimized the current opposition. And the kind of Calderon supporters have been a bit more uh, mum, um, although some people say, well, also the current president is also corrupt as well. So given that this such an extraordinary story. I imagine strains between U.S. law enforcement and Mexican law enforcement are pretty intense, are they not? I mean, who do you really know who to trust? Yeah, it's a very good point, and I think you know, it's very true um, that they're very strained. Uh, there's been you know, pressure for some time. Obviously, it was very bad back in the 1980s, you know, go back to 1985, when a DEA agent was murdered in Mexico, Enrique Camarena, and uh, there was Mexican law enforcement that used to be involved in that murder. And so that was a really dark days. There are these, you know, Mexican and American people who not cooperate at all. And there's been like undercurrents of kind of bad feelings. And, you know, I went to one, uh, you know, uh, police conference where they talk a bit more frankly outside. And they were like, well, you know, we, we're not, we don't trust them. We, you know, these are not our friends. In fact, they don't like us talking about Mexican law enforcement. He's obviously been with this kind of distrust for a long time, but now I think it will be worse. Think about it from both sides. From the point of view, if you're a Mexican official, um, you want to trust working too much with the Americans, or you could find yourself one day in a court of law um, being convicted. And if you're an American official, you want to get too close to the Mexican police because they, you know, they accuse of drug trafficking. It was kind of skirted over in this case, the fact that, you know, you know, there was a, a, a kind of triumphant message that was released by the prosecution saying this shows that the DEA goes after uh, corruption, political corruption, working with drug cartels. But it doesn't mention the fact that these American officials worked with this guy very closely for quite a few years. So it was kind of, you know, skirted over. And there was a lot of agents and people feeling quite embarrassed about this, as well as the fact there was photos of him with Hillary Clinton and with Barack Obama as well which the defense used to try and say, well, you know, he was working with America to deserve to try and say that he was corrupt. So given that you are suggesting in your article, Johan Grillo, so is Mexico a narco state, my understanding is that fentanyl has really changed the drug industry, if you will, in Mexico and made it more efficient and it's a much easier drug because it's so small, such small amounts are so powerful. I think you can put enough fentanyl in the trunk of a car 
to kill everybody in the United States. And they're producing it in enormous quantities in fake pills and lots of American kids are dying. And we're talking about middle class kids, college kids, high school kids. It's got the DEA quite concerned and they're not really on top of it. But it seems like it's a really hard one not to crack because the cartels control the harbors and the precursors to make it and it's easy to make it's not like you have to have cut the jungle down to grow cocaine or you know have hidden poppy plantations it's all easy to do in you know a small factory yeah i mean absolutely i would say that fentanyl has been a real game changer both in the mechanics of the industry and in we could say the ethics um, or the kind of moral judgments we need to make about it all. First, in the mechanics, I mean, as you point out, um, it's, you know, you don't have to worry about the seasons uh, for growing either coca leaves or marijuana or opium. You don't have to worry about crops being torn up, you know, uh, by soldiers or having been sprayed by poison. Um, and you can make this often the precursor to being made in China or in India, sometimes by Chinese chemists and taken into Mexico. Uh, but we might find a way that soon the Mexicans are making their own precursors as well, even cutting out a link there. Um, and the scale, I mean, the, the fact that it, it's so potent, so poisonous, uh, and the scale, so this, you know, tiny amounts, I mean, you know, like suddenly, um, you know, it used to be, you know, you talk about the, the amount of marijuana, you'd have to have these, these huge pieces of marijuana, you know, it would only be some of that, and then cocaine, and then heroin, was strong. but now thinking of a tiny amount, like you say, uh, one carload, um, you can kill the population of America, and you've got like this huge amount of it being, being being put out. Now, in terms of deaths, you've then seen these these figures, like you're saying, when I mean, 107,000 overdoses in a year in the United States in, in 2021 was the last full year we have um, numbers for. So, I mean, a huge amount of death, uh, and that really changes things. But when I first started doing this 20 years ago, it was 15,000 overdoses a year. Now it's 107,000, and the DA trying to up the gear on this, but not really with a clear strategic plan of what to do. I mean, carrying on with a tactical plan of bringing down drug traffickers, pressuring Mexico to bust these labs, but not really a strategic plan of how you stop this. The fact that it is smaller means it can come in, in, in you know, all over the board and creating huge amounts of it. And I would say it morally changes the game because when you've got that much death um, and, and people... Um, you know, dying. Before with marijuana and cocaine, you could say at least, well, this is what consumers want. Um, consumers want to buy marijuana. You know, why is it illegal? Uh, they want to buy cocaine. Why is that illegal? These people are providing them with a, with a good that they want. But we're thinking it's different. I mean, people are, you know, very badly addicted or they're taking these pills not even knowing what they're taking. All kinds of people are dying, real tragedies to families. It's not changing the moral judgment the problem is, I really, I really, and I honestly don't know the answer to this. What do you do about it? You know, how do you deal with this issue of fentanyl? Um, uh, no clear answer, no clear strategy of how to deal with this. Well, it's apparently now, even Americans who go to buy drugs across the border in pharmacies, some of the pills, when they think they're buying oxycodone or methamphetamine or anything, that they normally get it from pharmacies or at pharmaceutical apparently things like Xanax are laced with fentanyl 
and they're selling them in, in legitimate pharmacies. So it looks like the fentanyl manufacturers have just infiltrated the country in at a retail level. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting that. So you, you, you have definitely got examples of that where pharmacies themselves are just selling these pills and selling illegal pills. And that's, you know, unsurprising when you see the level of infiltration of organized crime at all levels in Mexico. But it's also an interesting thing that um, in Tijuana itself, you've got a lot of people taking fentanyl. And I was there recently, particularly the canal area. If you, if, you, if you know the border, you just cross over. There's a big canal which divides uh, the United States and Mexico. Um, and there's a bunch of people hang around that canal just taking these pills or you know, taking in powder form fentanyl. They worked in a crystal meth. And they set it there for um, you know, five, 50 petals for a dose. Uh, which is even half what it costs in the United States. It costs $5 a dose in the United States, like $2.50 for a dose there. And and people really looking quite, you know, zombied out and very ill. And there's lots of people dying in significant numbers in Tijuana. Now, that's Tijuana. But in other parts of Mexico, it's interesting to note, like in Sinaloa, where I've worked a lot recently, where the cartel is based, they don't actually sell much fentanyl on the streets there. And what I heard, and some other journalists have confirmed hearing the same thing from uh, drug dealers and people uh, in this connected these networks of crime, is they actually ban the sale of fentanyl in their own Sinaloa because of how dangerous it is. There was a, a song about one of the biggest drug traffickers on Miles Zambada, and it said the same thing in this song it released recently. It says as well that you know this is for the, for the, for the green guys, we don't sell it here to our own people. So it kind of is quite cynical and, and sad, um, but it, you know, it shows... You know, quite a marked um, thing that you notice in Sinaloa itself. Well, Johan Grillo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Good to be here, as always, Ian. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Johan Grillo, who's a contributing writer at the New York Times, specialising in crime and drugs. He's based in Mexico City and is the author of El Narco, which was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award, and Gangster Warlords, a New York Times book review editor's choice and a guardian book of the year his latest book is blood gun money how america arms gangs and cartels and he blogs at yoangrillo.substack.com where his latest article is so is mexico a narco state security chief Gennaro garcia luna is found guilty he's just the tip of the iceberg this has been background briefing i'm ian masters i'd like to thank producer graham fitzgibbon and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you like this program you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on itunes google play iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts and please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on twitter and facebook And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.